Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Series 2 of The Daniel Morgan Murder. I'm Peter Jukes. I'm Devi Amir. And we'll be exploring new revelations from the book by Alistair and me and more of the story which no one thought could be told. Hello, um, this is John Alford. I'm going to try and explain to you a little bit about what it's like to be on the receiving end of the dark arts. The only way I can explain it is if you go over a speed ramp or over a hill in a car quite fast and you get that pit of your stomach and it sort of lifts up into your heart and it's a numbing feeling. It's traumatic, it's horrible, it's nasty and it's not a feeling that you really, really want to be feeling. It's, it's as if you're shaking from the inside because it's just, it's stress, it's fear, it's every nerve ending in your body just tingling. It's as if you've been... I don't know, it's if you've gone through a death in the family. It's the only way I can explain it. That was actor John Alford describing how it has felt for the last 20 years to be on the receiving end of a criminal conspiracy organised by Southern Investigations, the fake Sheikh Maza Mahmood and News of the World. Untold. The Daniel Morgan murder. Welcome to episode 7. Following on from the last two episodes, the tabloid confessions of newspaper stings and the extensive criminal connections around corrupt cops and the Stephen Lawrence murder, we'll see both threads come together around Mazuma Mood, the fake sheikh, and his entrapment of the actor John Alford and the subsequent trial. I mean, what's amazing about the John Orford story is that it places senior Murdoch journalists and executives like Rebecca Brooks and Maza Mahmood working with, and sometimes in the same room as, known members of the South London underworld, including four of the suspects in the Daniel Morgan murder. Well, look, just to set the scene, we've now reached the late 90s, when news of the world was at its zenith as the biggest-selling English-language tabloid in the world, and its most famous reporter, Maz Mahmood, was one of the most celebrated journalists in Britain, at the top of his game as King of the Stings. 
And he'd got that way with the training and technical support provided by Southern Investigations and its corrupt network of cops. And then along came John Orford. Yes, well, John, by 1996, was a former lead in the hit kids show Grange Hill and was the star of an ITV drama, London's Burning, which, around that time, attracted over 21 million viewers a week. Then one fateful night, after the National Television Awards, John happened to meet another famous actor, Ross Kemp, a lead in the hit BBC show EastEnders at a nightclub in London. At that time, Ross Kemp was a partner of Rebecca Brooks, recently elevated from feature editor to deputy editor of News of the World. I've been, been acting since the age of nine. Um, it's something I love doing. Uh, it's the only thing I've ever known. And in 96, 97, yeah, I was riding high. I was on the crest of a wave. You know, everything was going well. I was earning good money. I, you know, I had, I had great friends and family around me. It just seemed like the world was my oyster. But I was soon to learn that there were dark powers that be working against me and, and conspiring against me. I presented an award to Lisa Riley um, at the National Television Awards uh, with, with Trevor McDonald. And um, after that National Television Awards, I went to a nightclub called Browns. Um, I was very drunk and I met Ross Kemp in Brown's nightclub. He didn't talk to him. I looked over at him. He looked over at me. He looked down his nose at me. I, I got a bit rude to him. He got rude back. I said, all journalists in here, they're all, I used the C word. They're all that. And he said, excuse me, my wife's a fucking journalist. I went, oh yeah, well, there you go then. So yeah, I probably said the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time, which was proven a few months later. That's when they came for me. Ross Kemp told Rebecca Brooks about what I'd said and she then sent the attack hounds onto me. They sent the top man on me, Majin Mahmood, the biggest attack dog that the news of the world had at the time. And yeah, they came for me in a very big way. They wanted me, no matter what, at all cost. In newspaper reports at the time, Ross Kemp denied that he initiated the targeting of John Orford. However, the members of the original News of the World attack team, who certainly themselves believe the sting was directed by Brooks in retaliation. So, whether it was a vengeance for the comment about Brooks, or just a random entrapment of a well-known celebrity, the question is, I guess, is this a typical fake-shake sting? Well, by the looks of it, yes. As we'll see, the methods used on John Alford are almost identical to those used 16 years later on the singer and ex-factor judge Tulisa Konstavlos, which would land Mazamamud in jail. However, back in the 90s, it's important to note just how close the fake shape was to the Daniel Morgan murder suspects. Yeah, in just one month sample of their invoices, May 1997, Southern Investigations built the news of the world for at least five stories with Mahmoud, who was by then elevated to chief investigator. And as always with his stings, Mazza Mahmoud's entrapment of Orford required months of preparation and a mixture of threats and inducements. In John's case, 
The threats consisted of attempts to bribe his friends to spill the beans on his private life, with thousands of pounds offered for kiss-and-tell stories. And as for the inducements... Well, John's agent started getting a persistent series of calls asking him to open a nightclub in Dubai. A lady who was representing the fake shake called my agent and um, wanted to get me to a meeting saying that I was going to open a nightclub in Dubai. They called probably four or five times. Um, I refused every time because I didn't think, I thought it sounded very suspicious and very fishy. Well, yeah, I mean, I used to open nightclubs all the time, you know, I used to do three a week. Um, it was quite a good uh, money spinner. So, yeah, th this, it, it wasn't an out-of-the-blue thing, but this one was very strange. There, were, it was just, there was something about it. I mean, it was, all, it, was all too, it was all just too weird. In the end, my agent talked me around to going to the meeting at the Savoy Hotel. So I turn up at the Savoy Hotel. I walk in, obviously I was very, very nervous. Um, I walk in to the bar where uh, I got met by two of his security, one of them was Melvin Herity, and the other one I now know to be Sid Fillery. They gave me drinks downstairs. I was then called away and told how to, to act, how to, how to behave in front of him, the etiquette on not to look him in the eye. You know, this is, a, this is a shake, this is royal. You know, I have to be careful, watch my P's and Q's. You know, they built me up, made me very nervous. You know, it was all about, it was all about the fear factor. They wanted me to be scared when I walked into that room. Yeah, Wednesday, 13th of August, 97 times now, 6.50. Take it. Go for it, comrade. Come on, we're in now. The moments before John entered the room at the Savoy were recorded by Mahmoud's video surveillance expert, Conrad Brown. In poor quality audio, produced for the later trial, Mahmoud can be heard telling his assistant that John was terrified, nervous, and that he was going to get a kick in. I'm sure he's, he's, he's going to be really... He's nervous anyway. Yeah, exactly. Funny, he's better actors than you. He's really small, isn't he? Yeah, okay. I'll pick him really well. Yeah? <laughs> so he's going to get a kick in. He's going to get a kick in. Then, to get into character, Mahmoud and his associate start talking in Urdu. Not Arabic, as you'd expect, from an Arab sheikh. So, I go into the room, um, imagine Mahmoud, they're all there, imagine Mahmoud, Ali Malik, the lady who's, who's with them is there. Come here, come here, come here. Come here. Please, Ali. Hello, Billy. Billy, please, please. Hello, Billy. This is my, this is Ali. Ali. Hello. Hello. I'm Mohammed. Hello. Mohammed. Oh. Yes, I don't think I've ever been so nervous in all of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Sit down. Thank you. Don't worry. And, yeah, I mean, the first thing I say is I'm, I've never been so nervous in all my life. They asked me what I want to drink. I said, I don't drink. I said, you must drink, John. You must drink champagne. You must drink. So I said, oh, no, I'm sorry, I don't drink. I'm teetotal now. And the strange thing was, everything Majid Mahmood said was an order. You must do this. You must do this. You will do this. You will do that. It was an order rather than a request. The last thing I say, it's on the tapes, when they were talking about drugs, and then I, I'm now realising what they want me to do, that they actually want me to get them some coke. And the last thing I say was, I'm really not comfortable with this. And Majid Mahmood stops the conversation abruptly. The tapes... I then turned off. We leave and go downstairs to the meeting downstairs. The pressure, when I look back at it, was intense. It was immensely 
pressurising. The the entourage, which I now know to be Fillory, they were they had things in that. They had prostitutes. They had so many different things set up for me to fall for. They had uh, Bradley Page, Conrad Brown. They had Sid Fillory. They had Melvin Herity. They had a big, big entourage. They had a team set up especially to get me. They were going to get me no matter what, at all cost. You know, and they were making out they were SAS men, you know, with guns. They told me I had diplomatic immunity. The fear factor was there. They were hounding me to get these drugs. Come on, John. I actually walk away from the table to gather my thoughts at one point, And I go into the toilet and I was followed by Alan Smith. Alan Smith followed me to the toilet. And he says, don't fuck this up. These are diplomats. You've got diplomatic immunity. You've said you can get it. Do it. Don't fuck this up. These are dangerous people. Do you not know that these are SAS here? You know, I, I was like a rabbit in the headlights. Honestly, I've never been so scared in all my life. Alan Smith, who had an extensive criminal record prior to becoming the fake sheikh's long-standing driver, was convicted, along with Mazen Mahmood, for perverting the course of justice in 2016. Financial inducements to go to Dubai, you know, working with Sylvester Stallone, working with De Niro, they knew all my heroes, you know, my golfing heroes, my acting heroes. They were throwing every one of my heroes at me, every sort of inducement you can imagine. The mention of Sylvester Stallone is incidentally quite revealing. That same year, 1997, Southern Investigations were working with Mahmood to crash Stallone's wedding party at another plush London hotel, the Dorchester. For this caper, they employed another private detective-cum-journalist called Christine Hart to pose as the fake Sheikh's wife. Now, Christine Hart maintains that Rebecca Brooks was so close to Mahmood at the time, they were talking on the phone four times a day. This is yet another indication how close the senior echelons of the Murdoch Empire already were to the rampant criminality of Southern investigations. Well, eventually I relented um, and, I, and, I, and I went and I, I, I tried to procure some coke for them. I phoned, I phoned somebody. They couldn't get any and I, I actually said, like, I can't get none. You know, and I, I, three or four times I said, like, I can't do it. I've tried. I'll use my phone, try somebody else, try somebody else. Um, and I said, did I phone my friend? He, he didn't know. He gave me a number to somebody else. I then phoned them. We then went, and I, and I did. I procured it, and I came back, and I gave it to them. So, yeah, I've always been completely honest about that. I did eventually relent. Uh, Majin Mahmood gave the money to Melvin Herity. Melvin Herity then gave me the money in the car. He gave me £200 and then gave me, there's another £100 on top, which I refused because, I, you know, I, as I said, I'm not, I didn't do this to earn any money out of that drug deal, you know. I don't want it. He said, no, he wants you to have it as a gift. Hereby lies a tower. To my detriment, uh, I told the truth because I got them four grams. Um, interestingly enough, only about two grams came back. It was, um, I think it was about two to three weeks after they called me on a Friday evening. Um, it was a guy called Ian Edmondson called me on the Friday night. Ian Menzies has subsequently been convicted of phone hacking since then. He phoned me on the Friday evening and said, we're going to run a story that you're a drug dealer. That's when I realised that the fake shake thing was all, all a farce. And in one phone calls, they actually wanted me to go and meet them uh, that evening 
to make things better where um, I would have done some stories with them and it would have looked positive on me but yeah they wanted me basically to get in bed with the devil and I told them to print and be damned I would never get in bed with the devil Sunday I, well on the Friday I'd phone my agent um, they all came round uh, realised that the, the article was going in didn't realise how bad it would, would be it was front page headline and it was yeah, a complete hatchet job. Not only that, afterwards, there was other articles, you know, saying that I'd threatened to kill people. I'd made, I put a contract out on, on somebody's head. I'd had uh, intimidated witnesses, threatening witnesses. Basically, everything that they do, they said I did. Yeah, as, as I said previously, the feeling of when you go over a, a big hill and that stomach thing, it was just constant, constant shaking from the inside. Uh, I was like a walking skeleton, you know, yeah, yeah, it, it was a very traumatic experience. Um, it was probably about uh, a month after that the police contacted me and asked me to go in with my solicitor, um, which I then did. Um, <sighs> yeah, sorry, I was just starting to just reliving that shit. It's just, it's a very, very, very dark moment in my life. And the, the, the funny thing is the tapes that they supplied for the meeting in the restaurant, which is the two and a half hours missing, they did supply a tape. And on that tape, there's just cutlery clanging. But Majumem said it didn't come out. So how are the cutlery, how is the cutlery clanging? And also, why was them tapes given to Mahmood? And that he was the only person who had the sole possession of them tapes. And it's an MO that he has. There's missing tapes in every one of his cases. And funny that the, the missing tapes are all the time, every case, that's where he attributes the most damning quotes to you in the tapes that don't come out. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The unreliability of this taped evidence was one of the key defences of John Orford in a pre-trial hearing in 1998 called a voir dire. Um, it was over about three or four days um, at Southwark Crown Court um, and it was we said that the, the evidence should be inadmissible because it was illegally obtained and it wasn't complete and the fact that the sources wasn't revealed to not just us, to the judge, so that he knew that this was all above board. Well, we now know it wasn't above board and he was right. The judge ruled that the evidence could be admissible, which was very, very strange. So now the judge has let this evidence be admissible. Now there is a point then when my barristers have said, I've inadvertently said, you know, I did this, but this is the reason why I did this. Um, so they couldn't then defend me. They said, well, we can't really defend you because you've now given an admission. So um, on the advice of my barrister and my mum, I didn't want to put in for any more stress. And I, like a lot of people who were stuck in this corner, many people were, and I, and I did. I said, OK, I just want to get this over with. I don't want to go my, put my family through this anymore. I plead guilty. My barrister said, I don't think you'll go to prison because of the entrapment issues. So I changed my plea to guilty. I asked the judge to, if I could say some words, um, which I did say. I said, I believe I'm innocent of these crimes, but I'm pleading guilty and I don't want to put my family through any more stress. And I throw myself at the mercy of this court. The judge then said, OK, Mr Shannon, sit down. You're going away for a substantial amount of years, which was quite a frightening prospect. So I was then taken to Brixton Prison. The funny thing is, I hadn't slept for months before that that night in Brixton I slept like a baby I did I had such such a good sleep because the weight had been lifted I knew I was facing possibly seven eight years in prison but it was over you know it was over I knew I knew my fate but something happened that was beyond my control or anybody else's that morning the whole prison was banging on the cell doors banging it was like I'd woken up to a riot but they were all screaming my name I was like, what's going on? And I looked out the cell window and I looked up and I go, Johnny boy, you're going home, son. I was like, what? You're going home, equivocal plea. I was like, what the fuck's an equivocal plea? I didn't have a clue. I didn't know what was going on. And I'd actually be given an equivocal plea. The judge wasn't allowed to accept what I'd said. Um, and I was then taken back to court and I wasn't, my a plea wasn't accepted. The judge said, I was, uh, sorry, Mr. Shannon, I didn't hear what you said, but I've read in the papers today what you said, um, and uh, I'm not allowed to accept it. So I give you a chance to plead again. Now, knowing that he's going to give me a seven or eight year sentence, I looked and thought, fuck it, I'm fighting it. So I pleaded not guilty, not guilty, not guilty to all three charges. And from looking at eight years, I was then walking out of court the very next day in a cab, completely stunned, completely shocked, and within... An hour, I was back at home thinking, what the hell is going on here?
In the year leading up to John Alford's trial in 1999, John launched a defamation claim against News of the World and, rather like Alastair Morgan during his campaign, he was subject to late-night calls and threats. The threats were ongoing. Um, I, I, I had to go to the Malicious Calls Bureau Three, four in the morning. I mean, uh, you can, the phone, the phone calls, don't lie. They're there, they're there in black and white, and that's why I had to get the malicious bureau involved because it was ongoing for a long, long time. And in the end, I snapped, um, and I said, "You fucking bastard! You keep phoning up." I mean, they were waking my mum. It was, it was horrific. I said, "You fucking bastard! If I find out who you are, I'll kill you." And they went, "Ha ha! Thank you, John." And put the phone down. I thought, "Shit! That's that's what they wanted. They wanted me to make a threat." Coincidentally, the trial of John Orford began around the time the probe was placed in Southern Investigations. And on its first day of evidence gathering in April 1999, the bug picked up discussions of Mazama Mood amongst the private detectives. I actually decided to defend myself. So the charges were supply class A, supply class B, and offering to supply, which is a trumped up conspiracy, which is the serious of the three. My defense was Majin Mahmood's credibility. Um, he was lying. He was lying about the two and a half hours of missing tape. He was lying about all sorts of things. The lady who was involved heavily in the setup she was involved heavily with instigating the phone calls to my agent. She was involved in the meeting initially, and she was involved in the dinner quite quite heavily. She, she was uh, very vocal. She was given evidence um, during the trial, and she actually started crying at one point uh, after saying she felt sorry for me. And at that point, a, a bald-headed guy, who I didn't know who it was at the time, came in and was just standing there staring at her, they were obviously worried that she was going to tell the truth. And I actually stopped the trial and I asked the judge who this man was. And the judge asked him who he was and he said, oh, I'm just a security for measured and mood. And they said, well, can you get out? And he actually got thrown out of court. Um, and the, the, the trial was stopped and she was actually given 10 minutes to go outside to gather her thoughts. She was very scared of somebody. And we now know who that man was. That man was Gary Vian. Well, the Southern Investigation's links go deeper. Despite being untrained in law and defending himself, John Alford did manage to elicit some major bits of information. I now know what happened because I've got these uh, phone bills from the hotel room that night and um, they phoned prostitutes and I can prove it. And I actually questioned him under oath, imagine my mood, admitted to phoning prostitutes that night, but wouldn't admit to staying in the room. But the phone calls went on, they left the room at 12 o'clock the next day. Also contained in this hotel receipt was a Fleet Street number that Mahmood had regularly been calling from the Savoy. This was a bit of a mystery, since News of the World headquarters were now based miles away in Wapping. However, 
the mystery was solved for us by Greg Miskew, the former news editor. He told us this central London number was actually patched through to the news desk in Wapping. It was a special phone available only to senior reporters and editors, which you drop all other phones to pick up. Well, it would make sense that Maza Mahmood had access to it. But here's the twist we discovered in working on the book. Based on the only surviving mobile phone records for just one month in March 1997, Sidney Fillory was also calling this number every other day. Two years later, in 1999, South Investigation's main office would also call this special line to News of the World. So, thanks to John Orford, what he calls the News of the World's bat phone proves how close News International was to the criminal underworld of southeast London and that Southern Investigations had a hotline to the heart of Rupert Murdoch's empire. The judge kept on stopping me, telling me to stick to the relevance of the case. I said, well, it is relevant because my defence is Majima Mood's lying and this is what his character's about, this is what the man is. And four of the jury did believe me because I had a hung jury. Um, some of the jury were actually crying because in the letter of the law, they were guided to give me a guilty, and which is what happened in the end, after six hours of deliberation. I got a not guilty on the conspiracy, all 12, so obviously they lied about all that sort of stuff. Um, the jury believed that they lied, but they were directed to give me a guilty because technically, in the eyes of the law, and sometimes the law is an ass, and in this case, this is one of the times, I did technically supply, but the judge did, in the end, say, yes, John, we do believe he wasn't a drug dealer. Some of the key character witnesses at the trial were the parents of an 11-year-old boy, Michael, were the parents of an 11-year-old boy, Michael, whom John had visited and come to know well before the boy died of bone cancer the previous winter. I went to see him regularly for the last five, six months of his life, bless him. Um, his name was Matthew Port Harris, and uh, the family were amazing. And I'd go out to visit him, and um, he, he had a bone marrow cancer. He was an amazing little boy, he really was. Matthew died before the, the, the trial. Um, bless him. It was, over, it was over the Christmas period. And um, <laughs> I could, you know, the amazing thing is, the horrible thing is, is, is that in court, Matthew's mum and dad gave me a character reference which I've got, um, and that went, and the judge, you know, I never cried all throughout. I kept everything in, and the one time I did cry was when they talked about Matthew and what Matthew's family wrote about me, and that's the only time a tear came and I did cry. And the evil bastards, oh, he, he was crying in the dock, um, but didn't mention the reason why I cried. The reason why I cried was because of the faults and the remembrance of Matthew. John spent 10 weeks in prison before being released on a tag. Maza Mahmood went on to claim many more scalps in the years ahead, winning multiple awards and the accolade of print journalist becoming probably Rupert Murdoch's most successful and famous journalist. In 2013, however, 
after the news of world had been closed for the phone hacking scandal. Its replacement, The Sun on Sunday, ran an almost identical sting by Maz Mahmood on the singer Tulisa Constavlos. It was a very familiar story. Tulisa was offered a job with Leonardo DiCaprio and other inducements, but also asked to procure a small amount of cocaine for the fake shake. Sources at the time tell us that the editor, Vanessa Newton, wasn't sure about the story. But after Mazza left the newsroom annoyed she wasn't running it, a call from Rebecca Brooks, then technically suspended awaiting the outcome of the phone hacking trial, insisted that Mazza's story was run. It was splashed all on the front page. Talisa was arrested and sent to trial just like John Orford. Except this time, the police caught Mazza and his driver Alan Smith doctoring evidence. The trial collapsed. Instead, Mazza Mahmood and his driver were arrested. And last year, both were convicted of perverting the course of justice. Well, after they did a panorama, well, Talisa case came up, Judge McCreef, who's an interesting character, he um, found out and proved that Maz Mahmood was lying and got Alan Smith to change his evidence, which is what he's done in my trial. I've got loads of different additional statements that they do, that's their MO. Um, and he, um, yeah, he went to prison. He uh, got suspended, that the news of the world stuck by him until the very, very end, and he ended up getting sent to prison, but there was a lot more justice to be served. Um, well, obviously, after Maz Mahmood was um, sentenced, well, after he was arrested, actually, the CPS sent me a disclosure pack inviting me to challenge my conviction, which uh, I hear very, very rarely happens. Um, but yeah, because of what we know now, we know the man was a nasty man, he's a manipulator of evidence, and we can prove that he's perjured himself many, many times in my trial and others. There are, I think, around 40 cases being looked at. I think every single one of his stories should be looked at because we now know that people have actually killed themselves because of the lies that he printed. How that man sleeps at night, I don't know. Next week, we're going to follow Scotland Yard's most secretive internal affairs unit, the Ghost Squad, as it tried to untangle the web of police corruption around Southern investigations. Episode 7 was produced by Peter Dukes and Devi Amir. Music by Shemaili Mir with additional music support by Incompetech and Daniel Pike. A Flameflower Duende production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.